Well, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28 as we continue to look at baptism. This is a one message that's kind of creeped into three Sundays, but I, I think that's uh, I think that's going to be okay, and we'll, we'll try to get through it this, this morning. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, kind of the end of what we were talking about two weeks ago, and then we're going to be answering some some practical questions. And uh, while I was speaking first service, I started getting more questions, and I you know I'm, I had my little uh, iPad on, and I see these questions start blinking. It threw me off, so I've turned off my Wi-Fi in here. So. It, Send all the questions you want, but I'm not going to answer them anymore. We're done. Uh, no, this is obviously a, a big issue, and I hope, as I mentioned uh, several weeks ago and continue to mention, I hope that the, my tone comes across and reflects what my heart feels, just a lot of love for those uh, who may have a difference of opinion here on some of these issues. And, and we're, all str- we're all trying to be obedient to what God has called us to do here, and so hopefully God will give us a great grace as we talk about these things. We'll be talking about membership in a few weeks when I'm back and then the Lord's Supper, and then we'll get back into the Pentateuch. So Matthew 28, uh, beginning here in verse 16, if you're able to, if you'd stand with me, in honor of God as we read his word together. Into the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writes, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let me pray for us as we continue. And Father, we do think of this passage here and our desire to be obedient to you, and we recognize that uh, there is not unity, uh, unanimity of opinion in, in your church about how to apply these verses. And so I pray even in our church that you protect our unity, that you would help our unity to be found in your son Jesus and the gospel which we profess. And I pray that you would help us to pursue understanding how to be obedient to you according to your word and, and give us your grace as we do that. I pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question we've been wrestling with then is, is how do we be obedient to God and his instruction here to baptize? And we've recognized that this is not some dry academic subject of how much water should we use, when should we use the water, and on who should receive it. Uh, th- these are real issues that affect people, that affect people, your brothers and sisters in Christ in this room. So these are, these are real issues that we're struggling with, and I hope that God helps us as we, as we wrestle with them. And not going to spend a lot of time, any time really, by way of review. We're just going to kind of give a little bit of the context, remind you where we've been, and then, and then just dive right into it. And the first thing that we've been talking about is we've been talking about how to be obedient to God in this area. Is we've seen that, well, baptism is a sign for believers. And we saw this definition from Bobby Jameson in his book, Going Public. We said that baptism is a public profession of faith and repentance, which signifies cleansing, forgiveness, Union with Christ, new life in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the new creation. So that's what baptism is. It's a, it's a profession and a sign. 
The second thing that we saw is that not, ba- not only is baptism a sign for believers, baptism is a sign for all believers. All have a responsibility to be obedient to God in this area and be baptized, professing their faith and signifying their desire to repent and place their faith in Jesus, that that's happened within them, they've, they've been cleansed, washed, renewed, all those things we've just talked about. Then the last thing that we've seen is that baptism is a sign for only believers, and this is perhaps uh, the point of most contention among believers, I and mean, even among believers with whom there be lots of agreement in many areas. And so we've been kind of wrestling with that, talking with that. I'm not going to go into what we talked about two weeks ago. I encourage you to listen to the messages before, if you need to, to get you a little bit of a context here. But the last group that we talked about would be the group that we have the most in common with, and that would be the Reformed Pado baptist the Reformed people who affirm like we do, the solas of the Reformation that you're saved by, grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. And I kind of describe that, that paedo-baptist position that is those who baptize infants. And I, I tried to be very fair as I did that, and I, I think I was successful because some of you came up afterwards and said, Daniel, wow, I'd never heard that before, and hearing you explain it, it made a lot of sense which was more than I wanted. Uh, my goal was just for it to make a little bit of sense, but um, we're gonna, so now we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about that, and we're going to talk about what we believe is credo-baptist, and really what we're talking about for the first part of our time this morning is why don't we practice infant baptism, because I think that's a very fair question. And not only that, but we're in, a, we're in an even more difficult position, because not only do we not practice infant baptism, but we require a person to be baptized as a believer to become a member of our church. And that's, that's a hard position to take. It's one I've wrestled with and one that I continue to try to think through, but it's, it's a position we've taken. We need to explain why that is and why do we believe that infant baptism isn't what Scripture describes or would require us or have us do. So let me just dive into it here. We'll talk about why we don't practice infant baptism. And we talked about this first reason already a little bit two weeks ago. Basically, number one, why don't we practice infant baptism? One, infant baptism, we believe, is inconsistent with the purpose of baptism. Again, we talked about that two weeks ago, but if we believe that the purpose of baptism is to proclaim our faith in Jesus Christ and to signify, to be a sign of what's taken place internally, spiritually within us, we don't believe that an infant is capable of doing that. An infant hasn't placed their faith in Christ and isn't a proper recipient of baptism. Every time you see Scripture describe in detail what baptism is doing. It's referring to people whose sins have been forgiven, how they've placed their faith in Christ, and it signifies what's taken place inwardly within them. And we talked about that two weeks ago. Number two, uh, infant baptism, we believe, uh, fails to appreciate the differences between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant. And Let me just kind of encourage you to to turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at Genesis 12, and also we're going to look at a passage in Jeremiah. Just a couple passages that I think really help us understand what I'm saying here. Now, our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters that I mentioned two weeks ago have, have done a great job, I think, helping us see the overarching picture of God's salvation. In other words, I think it's right to see great continuity in God's different covenants. It's, it's wrong for us to say, well, here's, here's God's promise to Noah here, and then here's a separate promise to Abraham, and a separate promise to Moses, and a separate promise to David, a covenant with David. These are all separate things. We shouldn't see God's promises, God's covenants like that. 
There's unity to these things. There's, there's one building upon the other. They're not unrelated to one another. And yet, and yet, I would argue that there's also differences between these covenants that God makes with his people as well. The Abrahamic covenant isn't just a spiritual covenant. There's physical things that are promised. And the best way that I've kind of, as I've thought about this a lot, the, the best way to articulate this that I can think of is this. You are born into the Abrahamic covenant. You're born into the Abrahamic covenant, but you must be reborn into the new covenant. So you're born into the Abrahamic covenant, but you have to be reborn to be a part of the new covenant. Let me take you to a couple passages. Genesis 12, we've looked at this. Genesis 12, the Lord appears to Abram and he says, go from your country, your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, John Frame, who's a great theologian, but also a paedo-baptist, would say, well, God's covenant with Abraham is, is just spiritual. And I, I think you look at this passage and you say, no, there's, there's also some physical components of this covenant. There's a real kingdom that's promised, a, a physical location with physical people. There's physical aspects to this covenant. And who's a part of the Abrahamic covenant? Who participates in it? Everyone who's born into it. All descendants of Abraham. Genesis 17 is the last passage in the Pentateuch that we looked at some months ago. In Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And so even though there's some similarities between the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant, and even though there's some continuity, some some continuing promises, there's also some differences, some unique features. And that brings us to Jeremiah 31, and I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Jeremiah 31. And this is perhaps the most important passage in the Old Testament to understand the nature of the new covenant in the Old Testament, what they understood about it. You come to verse 31 of Jeremiah 31, and this is what God says to the prophet Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And look at verse 32. He says, Not like the covenant. In other words, there's going to be some differences between the old covenant and this new covenant. It's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And, and how is this covenant different? Well, verse 33 tells us the difference. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so the, the, the people who are participating in this covenant, there's, it's not just, you, you're not just born into it, there's this, this new aspect of the relationship between God that's different from the Mosaic covenant and is also different from the Abrahamic covenant that, that the Mosaic covenant builds upon. Now the people who are part of this covenant are those who have been reborn. There's this new relationship, this closer relationship with God that's internalized, it's spiritual. Verse 34, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sins no more. Now, what 
is the basis of entrance into this new covenant. The old covenant, you're born into it. New covenant, you're reborn into it. I mentioned Ephesians 2 last week because I think this is an important passage for us to understand. Ephesians 2 describes us dead in our trespasses and sin. And then you come to verse 4, and what does it tell us in Ephesians 2? It says, but God, being rich in mercy, and then how does a person enter into this new relationship with God? How can the promises of Jeremiah 31 be realized by a person? Well, we come to verse 8 of Ephesians 2, and it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God. And so what is our hope of entrance into the covenant? It's not simply by being born into it. It's not by being baptized as an infant. A person becomes a part of the new covenant in a way that was different than the old covenant. It's a person fully realizes participation in the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. It's, it's new. There's some different aspects to it. And infant baptism, I believe, doesn't reflect the differences between the covenants that God is making with his people. We have hope for our children, but our hope for our children isn't based on them being baptized, it's based upon them realizing that they're dead in their trespasses and sin and they need the grace of God and placing their faith in him by his grace. Number three, the third reason we don't practice infant baptism, we believe that scripture teaches infant baptism fails to acknowledge the differences between circumcision and baptism. It seems to me to be a very strong statement, as our Reformed Pado-Baptist brothers and sisters would, would make, to say that baptism is a replacement for circumcision. In other words, circumcision is a sign of entrance into the Abrahamic covenant. Baptism is a sign of entrance into the new covenant. Therefore, baptism replaces circumcision. That's a very strong statement. In fact, there's only one place in Scripture we see them appear together, and that's Colossians 2. And I wanted to talk about Colossians 2. We don't have time this morning, but if you read that passage, you see there's there's some imagery that is shared between circumcision and baptism, but certainly they're not seen as synonymous, the physical acts there. And in fact, if you think about it, if baptism was a replacement for circumcision, it's very startling that it doesn't, that the Scripture never says that, because there are some passages that really could speak to that. So, for example, for example, um, there's a lot of times in the New Testament where you see circumcision come up. And normally what's happening whenever circumcision comes up is this. You have a, a group of Jewish believers, and this group of Jewish believers, usually they're, they're believers like from the, tri- from the sect of the Pharisees or something like that, and these Jewish believers see these Gentile believers and they get upset that the Gentile believers haven't been circumcised. And so these Jewish believers come, these Jewish believers who've been baptized come to these Gentile believers who've also been baptized, and, and they say, what you need to do is now be circumcised. You now need to enter into to Judaism. And what do the apostles say? What does Peter say? What does Paul say whenever this comes up? They say, look, um, circumcision is of no value. Circumcision was about entrance into the Old Covenant. So, for example, Paul says in Galatians 5, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's, it's a non-issue. Now, here's what I think. If circumcision had been replaced by baptism, there are some times in Scripture where 
things might have gone differently. So for example, Acts chapter 15, there's this big council and the, these Judaizers are saying these, these Gentile believers need to be baptized. Now, if, if, if circumcision had been replaced by baptism, here's how I kind of think the conversation might have gone. These Judaizers say, hey, these guys need to be baptized. And Peter stands up and says, uh, guys, remember? Baptism replaced circumcision. Or they, they, they say, they need to be circumcised. And Peter stands up, hey, they don't need to be circumcised. Remember, they were baptized. And the Judaizers go, what do you mean? And Peter says, remember, we had that big baptism ceremony a couple weeks ago. We baptized all those babies. Uh, they, they don't need circumcision because they've been baptized. And the Judaizers go, oh, right, right, I forgot. Circumcision replaced by baptism. That's not what happens. In the early church, baptism and circumcision were seen as, as different things, not replacements. So you get into thinking through this, you see both of them had some similarities, but, but also some very important differences. Very important differences. Yes, uh, circumcision identified, it sealed people in the Old Covenant, but it was also, the act of it was a physical reminder of the ethnicity of the Messiah. It was identification with this ethnic people who were promised a, a physical kingdom. And yes, baptism does mark entry into the church, but there's also other things that baptism does that are different from what circumcision signified. Baptism is a sign of a spiritual reality that's taken place within a person when it's performed. And that's why Paul can speak of those who've been baptized using language that only describes believers. The recipients of the signs have, have obviously changed. All of us would acknowledge that at least somewhat the recipients of the sign have changed, right? Circumcision was practiced only on male infants, and baptism is for both men and women. We all would recognize that the recipients of the signs have changed. The sins of infants have not been forgiven, so I would argue that's a difference between these, these entrants in the different covenants and the signs practiced are practiced in different ways in terms of who receives them and what they, they do to describe the covenants. They have unique features Baptism, in terms of who receives it, the actions, actions associated with it, highlights unique features of the new covenant. And so we think that, it's, that infant baptism fails to acknowledge, although it, although it rightly recognizes some similarities of imagery, it fails to acknowledge the differences between circumcision and baptism. Number four, the fourth reason here that we wouldn't practice infant baptism, infant baptism is not commanded in Scripture. Okay, and, and this, for those of us who are Baptists, this is a very strong argument. Okay? And in fact, some Baptists, I think, um, maybe are ungracious in how they respond to this, but they say, look, uh, bottom line, John Frame, who's a Reformed Pado-Baptist, would, would acknowledge this. Look, baptism never commanded in the New Testament. End of story. Why are we still talking about this? That's how a lot of Baptists would respond, but I think we need to be more gracious than that. But it's not a controversial statement to say that infant baptism is not commanded in Scripture. Uh, all, uh, all of us would agree with that. But I could even go further than that, right? Uh, not only is infant baptism not commanded in Scripture, but infant baptism is also not even described in Scripture. B.B. Uh, Warfield, also a Reformed Pado-Baptist, acknowledges that. He says, look, uh, we have to admit that there's no express command that infants should be baptized and there's no scripture, in scripture, there's no clear example of the baptism of infants, okay? And I think that's an important admission as well. Now, there are a couple passages in the New Testament where those who would argue for baptizing infants say, I, I think that baptism is taking place of infants there, okay? They'd say, I think that's an example, but I can't be sure. So, for example, there's several situations in Acts where you see households being baptized, 
Lydia's household is baptized. Um, the Philippian jailer, his household is baptized. And Reformed Pado-Baptist, Pado-Baptist would say, well, well, maybe there's where baptism is taking place. And, and I think that's a fair question to ask, but as we, as we look at Scripture and we look at some passages that describe household baptisms in more detail, I think we would say, no, that's, that's not what's happening there. So, for example, in Acts chapter 10, in Acts chapter 10, you have this story of Peter going to Cornelius, a Gentile, and, and you, it's described this way. He's, he's sharing the gospel, and then you come to the end of Acts chapter 10, and something very interesting takes place. You come to verse 44, and while Peter is, is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says the Holy Spirit fell on those who heard the word. So those who are hearing Peter share the gospel uh, believe it, and the whole, receive the Holy Spirit. They're saved. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They're shocked that the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit through faith. And they hear him speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declares, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? Now, which people? the people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so I think what you see there is a household baptism, but it's for the people who've received the Holy Spirit. That's the the purpose of what's taking place there. It's to profess faith in Christ and to signify the spiritual reality that's changed them. Peter doesn't say, hey, these people have affirmed some good things about the gospel. Let's baptize them. He says, no, let's baptize them because they received the Holy Spirit. That's the proper recipient of baptism. That's what I think is happening there. Now also, as we think, now this isn't a, this isn't a slam dunk argument, but as you think about church history, okay, the infant baptism isn't commanded in Scripture. Not only is it not commanded in Scripture, you don't see examples of it in Scripture, certainly not clear examples of it in Scripture. And you also, and again, this isn't our strongest argument, I, I, would, I would think, but you also don't see examples of it in early church history. So you go the first 200 years of church history and you find no mention of infant baptism. And the first mention you find of infant baptism that's clearly a mention of infant baptism is, is a negative one, like don't baptize your babies. Okay? And so that's, uh, that's not determinative, but I think that's instructive. And it seems like infant baptism developed uh, kind of in the 5th and 6th centuries uh, because of some other doctrinal things were taking place and uh, became more about uh, preserving children. We'll talk more about that later than, than actually a reflection of faith. This is actually a, a couple pictures here from a, a baptismal structure that I, um, that I saw in Ephesus, near Ephesus. And uh, go ahead and go into the next picture. That's, that's me incorrectly probably baptizing uh, Brock. Um, not enough water there for a good Baptist. And then, um, then this next picture you see, this is, so this is a, a structure that was built upon they say that the church that St. John, the Apostle John, founded, I don't know if that's true, but this is certainly a church that was built upon another church, 5th fifth, uh, century or so, and uh, you see it's a, it's a big structure. It's a big structure, and so there's, it seems like that was the practice of the early church to uh, at least need enough water for adults, and it's, it's a solid structure there, so it seems like that was a, it was a typical thing to do there in Ephesus, to, to baptize early proficients of, of faith. Number five, uh, and, and just touching on these last two very quickly because I want to talk about some of these practical questions, but number five, I would argue that infant baptism creates an unbiblical view of the church. And 
want to be careful here. I want to say this graciously, but as we look at Scripture, there's never a description of unbelievers being part of the church in terms of the church saying, yes, you're part of the church even though you're an unbeliever. When unbelievers are discovered in the church, the church deals with it, but there's never this idea that unbelievers and believers are existing in the church together. And what happens in infant baptism? A, a person who's unregenerate, who's an infant, has not placed their faith in Christ yet, lives a, lives a however long time until they do, that person is viewed as a member of the church. I think that's an unbiblical view of the church. Now, are children part of the church in terms of under the protection of their family? Do we have confidence and belief that God will bring them to faith in himself? Absolutely, we, we trust in God for that and we hope in God for that. But that doesn't mean they're part of the new covenant. They're participating in it fully until Ephesians 2.8 takes place, until they're, they've been regenerated, re- reborn, receive new life through faith in Christ. And then lastly, number six, and again, I want to be gracious with this one too, but I, I think it's true the, and, and in differing degrees, but infant baptism can also cause confusion about the gospel. Okay, Infant baptism can cause confusion about the gospel. Now, just because a practice causes confusion about the gospel, does that mean we don't knew, do it? But in, in this case, I think it's important to think about why it's so important to get the order of baptism correct. There can be confusion in the mind of a young person about the relationship with God if infant baptism exists at times. So a, a person says, okay, am I, am I in relationship with God? Or am I out of relationship with God? I was baptized, so I'm part of the covenant, but, but I haven't, you know, I, I don't know. And so there can be confusion about whether or not they're right with God. There can also be confusion in a young person or in a church about how a person becomes a child of God. Am I a child of God because I'm baptized, or am I a child of God because I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ? There can be confusion about how I stay right with God. Do I walk with God in sanctification, or am I basing my, the confidence of my salvation on this, this physical act that was done? And I think that's so important to think through. In fact, I would argue that the, the truths that come across so clearly when we talk about Reformed soteriology, the Reformed understanding of how a person comes in a relationship with God, are obscured through infant baptism. Galatians 3 says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. So Galatians 3.26, you're all sons of God in Christ Jesus. How? Through, not baptism, but through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And that simply can't be true of infants. And so to protect the the clarity of the gospel, you can't call something baptism that I think Scripture doesn't cause call baptism. And infant baptism can cause confusion about the gospel. How do I how do I get right with God? It's not on the basis of baptism. How do I get right with God? It's not on the basis of what my parents have done. How do I get right with God? It's on the basis of my trusting in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. I'm in Christ through faith in Christ, no other means. And I think that's important to get right. Well, let's, uh, let's delve into some practical questions, and I, I know that's kind of a lot there, and uh, now we've got a lot of practical questions to, to deal with, and I'm going to do some of these very with short answers so that we can get through them. Again, the staff would love for you to contact them throughout the week and get as many emails from you as possible, okay? So here's, here's the first question. Uh, should I be rebaptized? If I was baptized as a baby, okay? So should I be rebaptized if I was baptized as a baby? And uh, again, there are differences of opinion even among our church. And, and what, I would, what I would encourage you with is this. Strictly speaking, our church wouldn't use the term rebaptism to describe a person 
who was being baptized as a believer who had also participated in a baptism ceremony as an infant. And so our encouragement would be for a person to be baptized as a believer regardless of what they had done or their parents had done when they were a child. At the same time, we believe that if that would violate the conscience of a person, so a person says, man, I, I, I know you're telling me to do that, and so I, I want to be obedient to, to what people who are my spiritual shepherds are telling me to do, but that would really violate my conscience because I think that would be wrong. If that's the situation you're in, we would encourage you not to do that because we would not want to violate your conscience. We instead want to continue to search the word together and talk about how we can, uh, we can consider this issue together. Now, some would say, what about Ephesians 4-5? Does, does rebaptism violate Ephesians 4-5 that says there's one baptism? Now, when I see Ephesians 4-5 and see the one baptism, I don't believe that Paul is speaking there of the numbers of baptism, but the types of baptism. There's one type of baptism, and that's the, the Christian baptism. The Jewish baptism, John the Baptist baptism, the, you know, the pagans baptism, those aren't valid baptism. There's, there's one baptism. So Paul there isn't referring to the number of times a person has been baptized, but the type of baptism that he is encouraging the believer to participate in. Here's a second question. Is it always willful disobedience if a person isn't baptized? And, and I would say no. I don't believe that it's always willful disobedience if a person hasn't been baptized. Some people may be simply ignorant of what Scripture says concerning baptism. Some people may be mistaken in what Scripture says on baptism. And uh, also, I think there can be different types of, of disobedience, willful disobedience on this issue. Some people may say, you know what, forget it, I'm just not going to be obedient to God in that area, and that's obviously a huge concern. Another person may say, okay, I know what God's word says that I need to do here, but, but I'm, kind of, I'm kind of scared by it. There's a lot of fear there, and so I think that person's in a different situation than a person who's being purposefully, willfully rebellious in that area. And we would, we would want to work with people wherever they are on that issue. Uh, all these, again, just really good questions. Number three, uh, should I be rebaptized if I was baptized as a believer by a different mode, such as sprinkling? And so, say a person becomes a believer, they're at a, a Presbyterian church, and they baptize them through sprinkling or just a, a moderate amount of water, and they come here and we practice by immersion. Should they be rebaptized? And I think we would leave that to the conscience of the individual. You don't have to be rebaptized in that situation if uh, you do not wish to be. If you wish to be, we would do that. I don't know what I would personally do in that, in that situation. I probably would not be rebaptized if I had been baptized as a believer already, even if it was by a mode that I wouldn't believe is, is optimal and fully reflects what uh, baptism is supposed to be uh, reflecting. Uh, I was talking to a, a Methodist uh, friend recently, and a uh, pastor, and he was talking about how um, you know, at the church that he's been at, they've been used to people just kind of, being sprinkled just a little bit, and he, and he said that he just grabbed like a whole bunch of water and, and threw it on uh, the and they just kind of like what's going on here? And he says he's doing that to help reflect the idea of what what the water is supposed to represent, the cleansing and the rebirth, and uh, kind of shocked a couple people. Um, I say bring him bring him to a Baptist church, brother. We'll we'll shock some people here. Um, number four, uh, number four. I, let me combine four and five. Uh, should I be rebaptized if I'm not sure I was a believer when I was baptized before? And number five, uh, should we baptize children as soon as they want to be baptized? 
how young is too young? And a lot of, a lot of you have asked this question over the years. This is probably the, the primary question I get from parents about baptism. And let me just give you four thoughts to kind of help you think through this issue and help us think through as a church and what we as elders have, have kind of thought about. Uh, number one, we want to be very careful not to encourage false conversions. Okay, so a young person is at a, an Awana meeting or they're at um, a vacation Bible camp and they, they hear the, the leader say, pray a prayer, and they say, pray a prayer, and they go, I, I guess I'm a Christian. And everyone's like, oh yeah, you're a Christian now. We want to be careful not to encourage false conversions. And so if a person hasn't really understood the gospel, a young child hasn't really understood the gospel, we don't want to give them hope that they've understood the gospel if they haven't, if that makes sense. Now, secondly, related to that, we want children to be old enough to understand the significance of making the decision to be baptized. We want them to understand the significance of what's taken place when they're baptized. And if they're, they're not old enough to understand that, uh, we, we think that's a problem as well. A third thought, though, a third thought, and I think this is very important, we want to encourage children in their faith, right? And how discouraging is it if a young person comes to mom and dad and says, Mom, Dad, I've, I've just placed my faith in Jesus. And dad says, yeah, we'll see. You know, give it time, right? How discouraging would that be to a young person? And I can remember in high school even I had this friend whose mom uh, like would tell him, we'll see if you're a believer or not. I don't know. And, and it wasn't like he was living in rebellion. He was just, he was just a, a teenager, and, and she was very reluctant to affirm that he was a Christian. And just, you wouldn't treat any other friend that way that was an adult. A person who's an adult comes to you, hey, I just placed my faith in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't say, we'll see. You would say, I'm happy to hear that. Now let's, let's talk about discipleship and, and uh, continuing following the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to be, thirdly, we want to be careful to encourage children in their faith. And then fourthly, and this is very, very important to me, and it's this, we want to allow children to be obedient to God. And so a, a child hears that children are supposed to be baptized and then comes and says, I want to be baptized, and you say no. I mean, that, that seems wrong to me. But those things are intention, right? We want to protect against false conversions and false professions of faith, and we want children to be old enough to understand what's happening when they're baptized. And at the same time, we don't want to discourage them. So how do we balance that? And, and I'll tell you, I don't totally know, but I would say this. This is kind of where I've landed. When a, when a child comes and says, I want to be baptized, I think we say, that's great. Let's start heading toward that. I'm excited that you want that. Let's talk about your faith. Let's write down what you believe about the gospel. Tell me how you became a Christian. Tell me what it means to trust in Jesus for your salvation. You know, if God were to ask you, why shall I let you into heaven, what would you say? And, and is a child dependent upon their own works and what they've done and what mom and dad have done, or are they dependent upon Jesus Christ. And so I, I would do that. And then uh, I would encourage parents to just disciple their children and help them be prepared to understand. And so a child, as they're going through that process, understands I'm, I'm being obedient to the Lord because I'm, I'm, I'm moving towards, I'm preparing for baptism. I'm preparing to be ready to be baptized. And I'm being obedient to the Lord as he's placed me underneath the authority of his parents. Now, there, there's some tension there, but in general, we've, we've encouraged parents to wait until about 10 years old or so before they baptize their children. And that kind of relates to the other question, well, should I be rebaptized? And I would encourage a person, again, we're going to allow a person to, to, to base this on their own conscience, but I would encourage a person to talk to the people who are around them 
whenever they were baptized the first time. So, okay, did I understand the gospel? What did I say? And, and it may be that a person who was baptized at 12 just has so much of a deeper understanding at, at, at 30 or 40 or 20, but that doesn't mean they weren't a believer. It just means their understanding has deepened and grown. And it's another reason we encourage people to write out their testimonies when they're young, when they're old too, but when they're young so they can look at that and say, okay, I'm... 35 now, but, but I see what I wrote down when I was 10, and, and, and I understood it. I understood the gospel, even though I understand so much more now, I grasped it then. So write it down. A sixth question, who can perform baptisms? Who can for, perform baptisms? And our church and our history have practiced that the elders are the ones who perform baptisms. Now, we've thought about that. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if we'll always do it that way, but the reason we've done that is to connect the local church with this process of, of baptism to help a person understand as I'm baptized, I'm being baptized into to Christ's church and I'm, I'm being uh, identified with not just Christ but with his church. And I think it's important to do that. We don't want to just uh, separate those things so that a person goes, hey, you know what, uh, kids, why don't we go upstairs? I'll baptize you in the bathtub real quick. We'll get this thing done. Uh, we want to connect it to the church. And so, you know, I think we could go broader. Matthew 28 talks about discipling and baptizing and Who's discipling? All believers. So who could baptize? Conceivably all believers. But for now, this is what we've decided. And again, maybe we'll, we'll revisit that. And if, if, if you want us to revisit that, you can talk to us. Seventh question, is a baptism that isn't done through the church legitimate then? What about baptism done by a, a parachurch or at a camp? And I would say those are, if a person is professing faith in Jesus Christ, if it's signifying what's taking place internally, then yes, those are le- legitimate baptisms. Although sometimes maybe not optimal. Maybe not optimal sometimes. I think it's good if you can, if you desire that, to, to be identified with the church. And so that's, that's my encouragement to people. And I've been at camps where they've baptized and they've said, hey, we encourage you to talk to your church before we do this here at camp. And I think that's a good idea. But, but yeah, those baptisms, I would say, are legitimate. Number eight, does, bab- does Bethany allow baptism by sprinkling? I think we've talked about that already. Again, we think uh, baptism by immersion best signifies what uh, scripture says baptism is. Question number nine, can I, can I be a member of, a ch- of the church without baptism? And the answer is no. Uh, we believe that baptism was commanded by Jesus, by Peter, by Paul, as practiced by Jesus. And so uh, we believe it's important for a person to be obedient to God before they become a member of the church in that area. Uh, 10, question number 10, how significant are our differences on baptism? And, and I think it kind of depends um, I would say that our differences on baptism with, with well, let's say with the people that we're closest with, maybe Reformed, Pado baptist our differences are somewhere between uh, minor, like no significance, and essential for the gospel. That, that's a very big range. I understand that. <laughs> but, you know, it kind of depends on how you're talking about, what area you're applying to. Like, uh, and uh, I think it's important for us all to say, okay, do we all understand the gospel, yes. Do we understand that our security is not based upon baptism, but upon our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. And, and then I think that affects, um, that affects how major the issue is. But it is significant, and it does, we have to acknowledge, it does present an obstacle to full fellowship, and we have to uh, continue to pursue unity together and say, okay, we understand this is a barrier in our, uh, in our understanding, and so we need to pursue God's word together and pursue unity as God would allow us to. So it's significant in that sense. Now, here's, here's where things get dicey. Number 11, and this is, this is really hard for me. Uh, why not just allow Pado-Baptists who affirm the gospel to become members? Um, 
this is, this is the hardest question for me, just in terms of coming to a right answer on. I really wrestled with this. And in my mind, there's a difference. There's a difference between being confident in what I believe doctrinally and being confident in how I'm applying it. Does that difference make sense? So I can be confident that I, in what I believe, and yet I can, be, I can be lacking some confidence in how I'm applying it. And so to me, it's a, it's a big deal to say that our church is going to not allow people who are baptized as infants to become full members. That's, that, that's, that's hard for me. In fact, uh, we, we met as elders this past week and uh, had to be gently reprimanded by the elders to, hey, you've got to be consistent here. You've got to be consistent. I think that's right. Okay. Here, here's why not. Here's, here's why we don't allow people who've been baptized as infants to, to become members, because we do believe that the biblical nature of baptism is, is the profession of faith of a believer. And for us to allow people who are baptized as infants to become members, it means that we're saying that infant baptism is the baptism described in Scripture. You, you see that? So if a person is baptized as an infant and we allow them to become a member, then, then we're saying that that is baptism. We, don't, we can't theologically say that we believe that is what Scripture presents as baptism. That's hard. That's hard. And um, it's not something I enjoy. But, but I agree with the elders. That there's no way around that. We can't uh, do that in good conscience. And so uh, that brings us to question 12 then. Uh, how can paedo-baptists who want to be obedient to God by being members of a local church be obedient and attend Bethany Community Church? And, and the answer is very, very easy. Just get baptized, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, that would be nice. That would be nice. But let's be realistic, okay? That, that, that would violate some of their conscience, and we don't want to violate their conscience. I don't think it should, but it might, and we don't want to do that. Um, and so we, we've, we've thought about this a lot as, as elders, and um, we, we would say, first of all, we want to be in relationship with you. We want to be in relationship. We want to pursue relationship together. And we recognize that because we live in a fallen world where we don't have full understanding, this, this is a problem, right? This is, this is something that, that exists in our, in our church structure that we don't like in terms of that, that separation being between us. And we would, uh, I think it's important to know this too, as your shepherds, our first encouragement to you would be to be baptized as a believer. That's, you know, if you're putting yourself underneath the authority of the church and saying, okay, these are my elders, these are my spiritual shepherds, what I do, we would we'd encourage a person, if it doesn't violate their conscience, hey, be baptized. And so we recognize there's, there's a break there in how far a person who's not baptized as a believer is, is letting us speak into their lives spiritually. And, and that's, we're okay with that. And our commitment to every person who's here, we're going to shepherd you and care for you as much as you'll let us. Okay, as much as you'll let us, as much as you'll allow us, we will be there shepherding and doing life together. And we want, to, to, we want to, to do life together. We want that tension to exist. We think the tension is good. And there are various ways that a person can come underneath the authority of the elders and, and uh, seek relationship that, that are short of membership. And we encourage a person to pursue those. But ultimately, ultimately uh, that's, that's what's necessary to happen. And... Um, I'll tell you this too, this is a strange issue for me, okay? It's a strange issue for me because there's no other issue in the church where I could tell a person, I don't think you're in disobedience to God, willful disobedience to God. I think you're in full fellowship with God, and yet you can't become a member. There's no other issue like that. 
In fact, a person can not be baptized as a believer and be closer in relationship with God than I am. It's absolutely possible. And yet, because of what we believe theologically about baptism, we'd say membership is reserved for those who've been baptized as believers, even though we want to have types of fellowship with others that are short of that if, if they'll allow us. And, and by the way, let me just thank you, uh, those of you who, are, who fall into this camp, uh, for your graciousness in this area, your understanding in this area. And, and my hope, my prayer, and I know our, I know our elders have been praying for this, that, that God would, would allow us to do life together, together, to grow together, to pursue relationship together, and he'd bring us to, to unity in this issue as well. That'd be our prayer. Understanding that there's going to be many issues that, that cause us to continue need to grow together. So it's a good thing. Number 13, can a person be rebaptized even if they aren't convinced it's theologically necessary? Uh, short answer, yes. If they do it for the sake of their uh, unity, I think that's okay. Again, wouldn't want to violate conscience. Question number 14, why is there not a closer relationship between baptism and church membership at Bethany Community Church? Great question that many of you asked me. Uh, why am I not a member if I was baptized here? Daniel, you're talking about how baptism indicates membership, identification with Christ and his church. Why doesn't Bethany make that clear? Uh, to which I would say, back off, okay? We're doing the best we can. No, um, that's a great question. And I would say it's an area we need to grow on, uh, grow in. Um, a couple things. Now, this question was phrased different ways by different people. Some of you have come from a denomination that links baptism and membership very, very closely. You're baptized, you immediately become a member. Now, it's the denomination that some of you have come from. Not only does it link baptism and membership very closely together, the problem is it links baptism, membership, and salvation closely together, right? And that's, that's a huge problem. So they'd say, you need to be baptized, but to get baptized, there's some things you have to do first, and then you have to you become a part of the church, and to stay in the church and have salvation, there's other things you need to do. In other words, it's, it's, it, can, it can lead to the idea that it's a works-based salvation. So what we need to do is we need to, I think, do a better job at Bethany Community Church linking, hey, I'm, I'm being baptized, I'm becoming part of the church. We need to link those things more closely together. We're working on that. We're going to talk about that as elders. And at the same time, we need to understand I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I'm baptized in obedience to God as I've done that. And as I'm baptized, I'm becoming a part and identifying with Christ's church. And we're going to be working on how to do that more effectively, communicate that more effectively. Uh, question 15, what about those who believe in baptismal regeneration? In other words, what about those who believe that in order to be saved, I not only must place my faith in Christ, but I also need to be baptized after becoming a believer to be saved. And that's a position that's uh, big in central Illinois and part of the, the Christian church heritage. Not all Christian churches still teach that, but certainly it's caused some confusion, and we would say that's, that's contrary to the gospel. It's, it undermines the gospel. It certainly distorts the gospel to link uh, baptism with salvation in that way. Question number 16, what do people who believe in infant baptism believe it does? I have no idea. Question 17, no, um, it depends on who you ask, right? And it's, it's a confusing issue because a lot of people, even in the same church, will say different things about what baptism is doing. Some would say, well, it saves. Some would say, well, it seals, it identifies, it enters into the church. And there's, there's just a lot of different understandings in terms of what it does. But all of the, what, what they all have in common, in, in our opinion, according to what we believe Scripture teaches, is that all miss that 
For baptism to be effective, the person on whom it is administered needs to have faith. Okay, so that's why we believe that baptismal re- baptism uh, of infants is not effective. It, it needs to be practiced on a person who has faith. It's, it's symbolizing the faith that's present within the person. Okay, question 17. This is a question that many of you asked, and uh, most of the people who asked this were women. And uh, it was a question that just really made my, my heart ache for, for so many of you because I know so many of you have experienced this. Uh, what hope do we have for infants uh, in, the, in the womb or who have uh, died at young ages? What hope do we have for infants who have not been baptized? What's our hope for their salvation? And, and I, know, I know where that question's coming from, right? Here's what I hope we would all say, whether we believe in baptizing infants or, or don't. Here's what I hope we would, we would all affirm. Uh, we would affirm that none of us would place our hope for salvation on baptism, right? None of us would place our hope for the salvation of ourselves or our children on the physical act of baptism. None of us should do that. None of us should do that. What hope do we have? Well, as we think about children who've died in infancy, we think, well, first of all, uh, we have hope for children based, based upon God's great mercy and what he reveals to us in Scripture. In Scripture, we see that in Romans 1, it says that those who have the ability to comprehend God's general revelation are are without excuse. They've seen God's divine attributes. A a child, an infant, can't say that. An infant doesn't have the ability to see God's creation and understand his divine attributes. They they do have excuse, according to Romans 1. Also, we think of what God himself says about the young. He says the young are too young to be accountable. Deuteronomy 1.39, he was... uh, Moses is saying what, what God had said, and it's talking about the people who are disobedient, the adults who are disobedient, and not entering the promised land through faith. He says, as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, he says, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. In other words, the children aren't culpable for the sin of their parents because the children had no ability to know right from wrong. David had hope of his children, of his child who died in infancy. We also think about God's words in Ezekiel about how the children are his, the children belong to him, and the parents as they treated their children poorly were accountable to God because those children belong to God in a special way. Jesus says the same thing as he describes the kingdom of heaven belonging to children in the Gospels. And so what the important thing to think about is here is our confidence, we never base our confidence of salvation for ourselves or our children on the act of baptism. But as we think about children, we have hope of their Eternal rest with God, eternal presence in God, eternal place in God's presence on the basis of God's mercy is described in Scripture. Let me uh, skip question 18 about what term to use to describe baptism, uh, the, the proper mode of baptism we've covered. That's question 19. Question 20, uh, can I still be a Christian without baptism? And we've, we've talked about the answer is yes, but all of us should be baptized. Question 21, what's the process for being baptized at Bethany Community Church? And combine it with uh, question 22, uh, when is the next baptismal service? Which is a nice lead in here, right? Uh, The process of being baptized at Bethany Community Church is that you're going to need to meet with a pastor, uh, an elder, a lay elder, and, and just talk with them about your story of faith, about how, what your confidence of salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then uh, what you why you want to be baptized. And it's a very fun conversation. We'll talk through that. And uh, then, 
then after you have that conversation, we talk about the, the, the time, the place to be baptized. And so we have a baptismal service coming up in February, February the 21st, during first service. We're going to have a baptismal service. But um, some of you may say, well, Daniel, I'm, I want to be baptized, but that just scares me to death, that idea. And we can talk about other ways in which you can be obedient to the Lord in baptism. We've uh, baptized in uh, the afternoon at other locations with a smaller group of people, friends and family, things like that, people you invite to profess your faith. And there are ways that we, we... I understand being nervous speaking in front of people. I get afraid every Sunday morning speaking in front of uh, you frightening people. So I understand. I get nervous too. Uh, but we can work with you to, to be in far less intimidating surroundings and encourage you to, to be obedient to the Lord in that area. Well, a lot there, and I'm a little bit over time, but not as much over time as I thought I was going to be. So, uh, you know, God was gracious there. There's so much more to cover. Uh, I encourage you to contact, if you haven't been baptized, I encourage you uh, to contact someone this week. Uh, we'd love to meet with you, talk with you about uh, how to be obedient to the Lord in that area. And uh, I pray that God gives us great joy, right, as we think about this issue. As we come at this issue from different sides and thinking about different things, that we would all have this desire, God, I want to be obedient to you. I want to know what your will for my life is, and I want to, I want to pursue you in the right way as well, in great unity with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to be obedient. I want to be obedient to what Jesus says to do here in Matthew 28. I want to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Uh, thank you for the great joy in pursuing these things together. We pray that you would help us uh, to continue to be obedient to you, to continue to, to love one another, and continue to uh, teach these things clearly uh, so that we can be obedient to your word. We pray, Father, uh, for those who are hurting this morning, we ask for your special grace upon them. We pray that uh, our lives of sanctification now would reveal uh, the things that have, that have taken place uh, in our hearts uh, through faith in your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.